Should nutrition be a fundamental part of healthcare? Do GPs really know enough about it? And do the general public have enough access to nutritional advice? Hi everyone, I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Lakshmi Balthasan, and this is what we're discussing today on the Food Fight podcast. We're from EIT Food, Europe's leading food innovation community working hard to make the food system more healthy, sustainable and trusted. And thanks to our soon-to-be-released online course on nutrition for health and sustainability, this episode will explore whether doctors receive enough training and education around nutrition and the challenges and opportunities to making nutrition a more fundamental part of our healthcare. For this conversation, we're joined by two health specialists. First, Margarita Ronco. Margarita studied medicine in Turin, and after university, she's then trained for three years to become a GP. She's been working as a GP for a couple of years and has recently opened her own practice. Thank you for joining us today, Margarita. Hi, everybody. Thank you. We're also joined today by registered nutritionist Hannah Bohr. With seven years of experience, Hannah has worked in food manufacturing, driving nutritional improvements in ready meals for retailers such as Marks & Spencer's in Iceland in the UK. And more recently, Hannah has worked in the catering sector, where she's led healthy eating initiatives in the workplace. Thanks for joining us today, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. Thanks both. So the online course we're soon to be launching is aiming to help medical students receive knowledge around nutrition. And I guess, why is this important? Well, we've all been to the GP quite a few times, I'm assuming, in our lives. But personally, I mean, I've never actually gone to GP and been given any kind of nutritional advice. In fact, I think the only time that's happened is when I myself sought out a nutritionist. So... I guess when we've got such a, an obesity epidemic across the world and we have issues with things like diabetes, why is nutrition advice not provided when we go to visit RGP? And surely we're kind of missing a trick here. So uh, that would be something worth unpacking, I think, now. But before we get into the topic of today, Hannah, maybe you could explain to us all and our listeners, how did you get into nutrition? What is it about this space that really interests you? I think from a very basic level, I have always been really interested in food. I was lucky to grow up in a household where my mum and dad were brilliant cooks. I was always in the kitchen with them. They encouraged it, me and my siblings. So there was always a, a factor of it there. And then as I went through the stages of school, biology was one of my favourite subjects and, and sort of the interaction of, of the environment with how your body works. And then it just sort of was a, a merge of the two things, really. And then when I was looking at options for university, nutrition was an area of interest. So I sort of went down it that way, really. Amazing. And and yeah. now that you're in this space, can you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of, you know, what does it involve to be a nutritionist? What's an average day look like for you? Oh, it's, it's honestly... <laughs> that, does it's, that not exist? Yeah, no, it honestly totally different. And you can ask every nutritionist and they will give you something different based on what sector they're in. So when I was in manufacturing, a normal day for me would be spent very much in kitchens with development chefs. They would be creating recipes for retailers, products, and then I'd be analysing the recipes and much to their disgust, I'd be telling them to take the salt and the fat and reduce this, remove that. But lots of benchmarking against products and some really stringent guidelines that we have to follow. Whereas in catering, it's a bit more back of house. So there's menu development to align with, again, lots of government legislation, restrictions in terms of what we can feed children in schools and also the fun stuff. So I do sort of workplace initiatives. So again, with the chefs, we invite colleagues into kitchen development kitchens and work on cookery skills or kitchen confidence, that sort of thing. 
or it could be private client based. So as of the past year, it's all been online. But yeah, having chats, just quite informal conversations with people to find out about their health and what their lifestyle goals are, and then working on on programs and support plans for them. So yeah, really varied, but it's fab in, in that sense. Amazing. Love that. Yeah, it does sound super <laughs> varied. And are you connected in at any point into the kind of the, the GP space and with doctors and the healthcare system? Does that work at all for you? I don't often link with, well, actually, that's not true. I was about to say I don't often link. I do some work in terms of workplace well-being in the healthcare settings that we have, but that's very much for the staff at hospitals rather than patients. I sort of leave patient feeding to the dietitians who are considerably more qualified to do so. However, I have worked with private clients who one in particular springs to mind um, was diagnosed with type one diabetes quite late in life um, and is a very active individual fitness instructor. So she was really struggling with hypos and hypers. And I don't ever prescribe medicine or anything like that. I take all of those cues from the dietitian or the consultant that she was seeing. So I know exactly what medication she's on, but in terms of how that then translates into lifestyle, so she needs to eat as well as medicate. And that's the bit she was struggling with. And she personally felt she didn't have the support there for that. So that's where I come in and providing recipes and meal times. And if you're having a hypo, eat this. If you're about to do some exercise, you need to consider what you're about to eat. And, and those sorts of conversations to translate, I guess, the science mm-hmm. into user-friendly information. So I guess there's crossover in that sense. Hmm. And this uh, client that you're seeing now, Hmm. were they referred to you from sort of the healthcare system or just? No, so I guess in fitness, similar fitness circles, she she became aware of of me and and the work that I was able to do. I have there is sort of a link, really, because I, I work with children in schools for menus that are bespoke to their requirements, which in in some cases includes diabetic children. So they can't always eat certain things or they need their carb counted meals. So I, I provide all of that information. So I think just from general conversation and finding out the areas that I work in, she then approached me and she said, would you be willing to, to take on a, a new client um, of an adult sitch scenario? And mm. so, yeah, so that's how we ended up working together. Mm. Thanks, Thara, Hannah. And coming to you, Margarita. So you are obviously trained for multiple years to become a GP. And during that time, you know, we, you, you probably received the fundamentals of biology and anatomy, but how does uh, nutritional training and food fit into your uh, training program as a GP? Actually, there was any program about nutrition. When you learn uh, also biochemistry, you have to learn about nutrients and the chemical reaction. But then it's, uh, they're all things uh, you just forget two days after the exam. But nutrition as lifestyle, as uh, diets and so on, uh, are not really part of any program. Oh, nor during really... university, nor during the, the GP training. Oh, right. That's really interesting. Now that you're practicing, in your opinion, do you think that would have been valuable information to have had? Yes, because as you start working, you realize uh, that you actually lack some skills. And uh, it's true for nutrition and it's true for uh, many other things. Here in Italy, we have a very theoretical uh, education, which is not very practical. And uh, as you start to do the job, uh, you understand that uh, you need to learn something by yourself. And so now looking back at your education, do you think nutritional training is something that medical students should be receiving? Yes, of course. 
should be very important. Should be, I mean, something uh, more organized. Let's say so. And I guess, is there anything specific now when you're interacting with your patients? Like, what advice do you think you would be able to give them, or would you rather just refer them to a dietitian or nutrition like Hannah? Well, uh, in my everyday practice, I I always giving uh, nutritional advices, and uh, for as you analyze blood exams. Uh, you need to, to tell them something about lysemia or high fats in the blood. I'm always acting like a dietitian. If there's something that's too much for me, I just send them over to a more specialized uh, doctor, basically. So do you think then that the two areas of sort of, let's say, kind of conventional medicine and nutrition, are they complementary then? And should they be complementary? Yes, especially for SGP. Because uh, one of the main points of a GP is to modify and to correct uh, people's lifestyle. As you tell them they should not smoking, you have to teach them how to eat. Because many people think that potatoes and peas are vegetables. So when you, you, you start from this uh, conviction, you, you have to, to start from the basis. Yeah, I got it. So do you think then, I mean, this is an open question to both of you. Should this nutrition advice, should it be delivered by mainly by GPs, mainly by nutritionists, or a kind of a happy marriage of the two together? I think it's ethic that the advices come from the GP at the first time, because here in Italy, we don't really have this idea of connecting uh, the things on territory and the hospital. We are like uh, two separate things, especially in this period with COVID and so on, uh, hospitals just closed. So many people came to us and uh, all the metabolic problems like diabetes, like problems with uh, cholesterol and so on, just uh, get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. So you become uh, the first help uh, the person comes across. Got it. And Hannah, do you agree? Do you think that GP should be the first point of contact and then kind of get referred on? Absolutely, because there's certain things as a nutritionist that I can't and and other nutritionists shouldn't be doing. So things like diabetes, for an example, we shouldn't be prescribing medication in terms of insulin calculations that should remain with a dietitian or a GP. That is their area of expertise. However, after that part has been done and the GP is offered what they feel is suitable, there should, in my opinion, be an option for further support for a referral to in most instances there are a lot of nutritionists who are qualified enough to be able to work with patients I guess the issue comes because nutritionist isn't a regulated title Mm. so whereas a dietitian is you know the credentials of that individual nutritionist not so much but I guess in a healthcare setting there would be controls in place to make sure you're referred to somebody legitimate with the correct education but yeah I absolutely think there should be a mix of the two, uh, especially in the UK, where we can see the strain that the NHS is under. Mm. There are a lot of us who are here and ready and willing and want to be able to help. But there doesn't seem at the moment to be that connection with the outside world. It's all it, it's quite insular. So if you already work in the NHS, that you may get a referral. But I know one of the hospitals that, that I work with or the company I work with, I think it's about a 400 bed hospital and they only have three dietitians for the whole site. Wow. So they have patients to look after and they're outnumbered. So especially with COVID and the amount of of time that people spend in hospital beds, not eating, often being tube fed. So for the dietitians to then 
step away from that and then speak to people who maybe do have other health conditions, but they're not deemed as life threatening. There isn't the resource there to support it. So I think it would be brilliant if there could be a link between more of us. But. Mm. So it t- sounds like with dietitians, you talk to me, I don't have a full understanding, is someone who comes in while you're a patient, while you're already in the hospital, whereas there's a potential role for nutritionists in the role of the prevention side. So even before going to a GP, so can you, do you have any thoughts on that? Like the role that prevention has to play and the nutritionist role even before a patient steps into the healthcare system? So yes, so I think one of the things that was mentioned in the government's obesity strategy last year was encouraging GPs to prescribe cycling as a method for weight loss and and managing overweight. That's great on paper, but if you're you perhaps don't have a bike or you don't know how to cycle or perhaps don't even want to cycle. It's not a viable method to support people in losing weight. And I think that GPs are under so much pressure to see so many patients. I don't know about you guys, but if you try and ring up for an appointment here, <laughs> it's really difficult, really difficult. Yep. So I do think it would help general practitioners and the health services across Europe, not just the NHS, if there was a precursor where people could maybe approach a nutritionist for some support ahead of it getting to a medical situation where they require input from a medical professional. Mm. And I think that almost speaks a little bit about the knowledge. I mean, it's sort of ingrained into us, right? You have a little cough, cold, anything scratch, you go to your GP. That's your first Mm -hmm. point of call. And that might be hard to change, but what level of knowledge do you think a GP needs to know, so it's a question to both of you, to be able to then say, actually, this might be something that a nutritionist might be your first part of call. So what do you think that a GP might need to know, Hannah, and also Margarita, from your point Mm -hmm. of view too, that would really help you assess, maybe I'm not the right person. Maybe this is something a nutritionist needs to deal with first. Well, uh, to me, it depends on uh, the disease. I mean, for example, diabetes type 1, to me, is something uh, an endocrinologist or a dietitian should see. I'm not giving any advices. Mm. But the, a man of, uh, in his 60s uh, that uh, gets the, a diagnosis of diabetes type 2 maybe doesn't even need drugs. Uh, well, I can start from diet uh, and exercise. So, mm. so it depends on the level of gravity or uh, renal failure. I don't know. They need mm. something more specific about proteins. Uh, I, I cannot count uh, how many protein a person gets in one day. So that should be for a dietitian. Mm. And do you have a system? So I think for right now, like you said, you know, at what point to send someone to endocrinologist, you know, at what point to send someone to a hematologist, a specialist. But do you think you have the skill sets right now through your training to be like, ah, okay, someone comes in, for my example, I'm always tired. If I come into my GP and say, I'm just always tired. And then, you know, you find out that I actually eat like one meal a day and it's usually just coffee. Um, <laughs> Which is actually true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll admit it. True story. Um, but, you know, I always think, hey, maybe I should go see my GP because I'm just chronically tired. Would you feel comfortable within sort of the, your training to be like, actually, maybe before I put you through the healthcare system with all the MRIs and blood tests, maybe you should have a chat to a professional nutritionist Would that be something you would consider or do you feel like you have the skill sets or the support of your healthcare system in Italy to be able to do that? I think it's like a philosophical question about my job. (laughs) Because (laughs) no, I uh, may, 
once uh, an old doctor told me that uh, the role of a GP is to understand basically if there's something uh, dangerous uh, or uh, if it is something you can face uh, gradually, I mean, slowly. No? That, that's uh, the, the key point uh, of every question, every problem of people. No? You have to be able to do a basic uh, starting level, let's say so, no? to solve the, the basis of the problem. Then uh, if you see the problem gets bigger, then you need to refer to someone else. Okay, yeah. so mm-hmm. it, it's, all, it's always like this. It's... Uh, I don't know, respiratory problems. Uh, you can do a, a, a basic spirometry you know, in your office. Uh, then if you see it's okay, you stop there. Then if you see there is something wrong, uh, you, you just uh, call the pneumologist. It's mm. the, the basically how our job works. Yeah. And can you, I guess, sort of bring this to life for us and you know maybe bring people into your office for our listeners? So... When, you know, you're obviously seeing patients all the time, maybe now a bit more virtually, can you give us some examples of like patients' questions with regards to nutrition, if they even ask, and how maybe you see that has evolved, you know, since you've started, if you're able to offer that? They don't ask anything, actually. They don't ask any questions. That's interesting. No. And do you think, is that because they're not aware enough themselves or because they might feel like embarrassed and they don't want to be talking about these sorts of things with a GP? It's, what's your sense? I think uh, it's both of them. Right. Then it, it depends on the person because if you have, for example, an obese, uh, I had some times ago, a guy of 24, 24 years old whose BMI was uh, uh, 42. And, uh, that sounds high. And uh, he had just one kidney. He came to me uh, because he had uh, a urinary infection and he was worried uh, about the kidney. Mm. Then I solved the problem of the kidney. Then I I looked at him and I said, you realize uh, you weigh too much with just one kidney? And it was like it wasn't his problem. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, uh, Mm. It wasn't even aware, or maybe he didn't want to face it. I don't know. And then I I made all the speech and they sent him to the the biggest hospital here in Turin uh, where they have the obesity center. But uh, he he didn't come for for nutritional advices. Mm. So it wasn't his main problem. Yeah. Thank you, Margarita. Hannah, I could see you wanted to add something. Yeah, so it's a really, really interesting point. There's a study just been released about the impact of COVID on school food in secondary schools in particular, what the provision is. Obviously, it's changed a lot because they've got to shorten lunch breaks, they've got to keep the bubbles, all of that sort of thing. But one of the quite, I guess, opposite ends of the scale, really, there was a noticeable increase in junk food being sold because it's quick, it's grab and go, it's easy. Mm. But also there is still very much a perception that healthy eating is uncool and there is still a perception amongst younger generations. So I think you just mentioned then that your patient was 24 years old. There's still very much a culture of I'm invincible, Mm -hmm. like food, it doesn't matter what I eat, it'll be fine. And that's a really hard attitude to combat. And I think I've also encountered, we've got so used to having quick fixes for things. So if someone can have a drug that does what Mm -hmm. they need to do, they want to take that. They don't want to go to the gym and they want to eat burgers. There's nothing wrong with eating burgers, but they want a high fat, high sugar diet because that's what they enjoy rather than the effort that goes into to healthy eating. There is still very much, 
I can't obviously comment for the rest of Europe, but the way I've seen it in in the UK, mm. there is still very much that approach to to health. Mm. That's interesting because it it seems like there's a weird conflict here. That I mean, again, my assumption is, and it would be you know, please challenge me on this, that the awareness of things like obesity and like making healthier choices is increasing at least you know in in the media on the social so it seems like it's it's more out there and people should be able to sort of digest that and yet well, maybe particularly for young people they also don't necessarily care at this stage of their life i mean is that mm. how do you overcome that yeah it's a really interesting conversation and one i don't have the answer to mm. but i there is a lot of feedback and research that shows people are sick of having health rammed down their throats right. you can go mm. online to our the, I, I probably the not most scientific but the very well read daily mail or the sun and there is something food related every single day whether it's related to a fad diet or a latest don't eat this because it'll give you cancer people are so confused the word healthy is now something that people switch off to and marketers have mm. also jumped on that because they don't use the word healthy anymore. They they talk about wholesome or nutritious or delicious or they're trying to use positive words because there is such a dislike for things like healthy out there. And I think it's really interesting because there absolutely is an increase in awareness especially with sustainability being such a, a target, we have absolutely seen, especially through lockdown, an increase in people supporting local businesses, becoming more aware of where their food is coming from. Possibly Italy are already ahead of us with that. I think there is a difference in culture across mm -hmm. Europe versus over in the UK. But on the flip side, we have highest levels of food poverty in the UK that we've had for a very long time. And levels of obesity do differ within different ethnic groups. Unfortunately, it is a sad fact. There mm -hmm. does need to be more support for, for the different groups and how the Eat Well Guide, for example, how that translates to different cultural eating. Because at the moment, it is a very white British guide. Mm. So mm. it doesn't often translate to those groups that need the information the most. So I think there is a big disconnect, as you've said, it's about linking the two in an affordable and attainable manner, I think, which is not easy. Yeah. No. And think your point about that word healthy, almost having a negative connotation, Hannah, is really interesting. Mm. So Margarita, like, what's your take on that? Do you find that, you know, your patients are coming to you because they feel unwell? They have a specific mm. diet, you know, they expect a diagnosis, a referral or a prescription from you. Is your impression very similar to what Hannah said? Do you feel like if you start to talk health that they might have kind of switch off from the advice you're trying to give them? Not really, actually. So okay. uh, I think people come to me, they do not expect uh, nutritional advices. Uh, they just expect me to give them drugs. Yeah. So right. that's the point. Uh, yeah, and uh, so if they have, for example, high fats in blood, they expect me to give them uh, the medicine. Yeah. And uh, as I prescribe the medicine, I say, but you should always also be careful about your diet because medicine would not be enough or maybe in two years, it won't be enough anymore. So, and they are kind of uh, surprised. So it's, it's not their expectation. Okay. But they no. welcome your advice. Yes. Okay. But, and 
And this is something that Matt and I were chatting when we were developing the script. And I wonder whether, like you said, Hannah, about prescribing cycling. I mean, if GP started prescribing apples and carrots, is this what it's going to take for people to change their behavior? Like they need something, you know, a professional to be able to tell them, just stop doing this. What do you think, Margarita? I think uh, this kind of thing should start from uh, the pediatrician. Ah, Okay. Because I, I think that working on children is kind of easier. They're more elastic than us. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, children then take good habits uh, in their families. So maybe this kind of job uh, could be much difficult for us, uh, but not so for a pediatrician. Mm. Ah. So that's interesting. So if we start with kids when they're young and they get more used to having that kind of advice from a yes. pediatrician... A, they're going to take that into their families when they're young and maybe sort of say to their parents, we should all be eating better. Yeah. You know, that's that's a big plus. And B, it might just become something which is more normal for them as they get older to be able to say, I want to go and see my GP or mm-hmm. a nutritionist to talk more about my about my health and my healthy choice, you know, the choices mm-hmm. I need to make. I, I think that's really interesting. So maybe more focus needs to be put on sort of, uh, you know, youngsters yeah. in this space. Hannah, do you agree? hundred um, percent. So I do workshops in schools. And I think the other thing that's really important that should be added is, in my opinion, cooking is a basic life skill that everybody should be able to do. And there is no consistent provision for food, cooking, nutrition, health in the UK curriculum. There are bits that form other parts of modules, but where you get geography teachers, history teachers, maths, English, in schools, you don't always have food technology teachers Mm. or even the availability of kitchen facilities. I know the secondary school I went to, they've got rid of their kitchen facilities because they didn't have a consistent teacher. So they've done away with it. It's now just another regular classroom. And I think if you're teaching people about health, which is absolutely important and should be there, I 100% agree, but you also need to give them the tools to then be able to implement that knowledge. So I consistently come across children and I my favorite question to ask them is so what's your favorite food to cook who, who cooks at home and uh I, I will always get pizza so I, I play devil's advocate and I'm like oh brilliant so you make the dough and and they're like no I just take it out of the freezer and I put it in the oven and um it's soul destroying because these and it's not I'm not I'm absolutely not blaming the parents but it is a generational thing where if you're in a household that just eats ready meals and takeaways or from freezer to plate, that's creating the habits that you're going to take through into adulthood as well. So if there is some sort of a a, a system in schools to educate on food groups, health, how that translates into the kitchen then, and and inspiring, like kids love the hands-on stuff. I go into a classroom with a bucket full of all sorts of food and they are straight in there, no questions asked. They want to be involved. So I think they, like you say, they're like sponges as kids and they take information in and they go home and try stuff. And also kids give into peer pressure really easily. So if they see their friends trying things and doing things, they're more likely to do it because and I've had conversations with parents who've gone, oh my God, how did you get him to eat that? Like, I can't get him to eat that at home. I said, well, I haven't. I've just left the kids to it. I gave mm. the instructions, given them the, the the tools, and then they go far away with it. So it absolutely does work. We just could do with a wider implementation of it. I mean, I, I, it'd be interesting to hear, do they have that in the curriculum in, in Italy or is it something that we're behind on? 
No, in Italy, there's anything about that, uh, but we have uh, this culture of food. Mm -hmm. So it exists uh, here in Italy to take things from the the fridge or the freezer and uh, just put in the oven. Mm -hmm. Okay. But uh, still, I I can't cook very well, but I know how to cook uh, the basis, uh, now the surviving. And I think many families are like me then things get worse in uh, like um, poor neighborhood because mm-hmm. we see here in, in town uh, we we just made a study about uh, diabetes and um, heart attack and uh, we saw that there's a, a very high prevalence uh, in certain neighborhood mm-hmm. and a very low one in the richest neighborhood of town maybe habits are different uh, no between mm-hmm. these neighborhoods and uh, no so there should be something at school I, I strongly believe in this uh, in this point. Yeah, I have to admit, I totally agree. And just as a personal side note, I remember when I went to university, I mean, I was always quite into my food, but, you know, probably could always have done better. But I, I to your point, Margarita, I knew how to survive, right? So I went to university. I was more than happy to cook for myself. However, I did come across some very interesting characters one of my friends who I will remain nameless, but she actually watched me cooking one day and she asked me, how do you do that? And I was making cheese on toast. <laughs> right? And she didn't know how to make cheese on toast. And she spent about four months of her first year of uh, university eating baby food Aww. and rusks. Rusks because I like baby awesome. biscuits because she didn't know how to eat. And, you know, so it's, and she's actually from a, you know, let's say quite a well-to-do home. And, you know, so it's definitely, there is an issue here with, um, you know, sort of lower income uh, communities, but I think Mm -hmm. it is probably more prevalent as well, because I've seen it myself. But anyway, a a side (laughs) note, sorry, sorry to my friend, she'll she'll love me name checking her. But I find that... um... That education piece, you know, you said just starting from a really young age, quite interesting. And I'm thinking about it in terms of like the holistic health care, right? So, you know, we said GPs are the first point of call. Like, like what are your thoughts? You know, this if we can rebuild the healthcare system, you know, <laughs> what would you think would be helpful to you, Margarita, in terms of you you're practicing a GP, in terms of your your skills training and what support systems would you like to have in place? to be able to support your patients for optimal health? Well, I think the in the, in the utopic world, I don't know, in, during the GP practice, uh, which was uh, well done, I can say, things were divided by topics uh, and they were very practical, okay? I think uh, one of these courses uh, should be focused on nutrition, for example, but in a practical way because you have to translate the advice uh, in something the person can do in uh, his everyday life. It's fine to have a, a plan. Then uh, you have to be, as Anna said, uh, you have to be able to cook everything. You have to, it has to be possible because uh, maybe you can't uh, buy fresh vegetables every morning. So you should be given the instruments to translate the, the medical thing into uh, real life, let's say so. Mm. So practical training based in the real yes. world rather than yes. you know, theory. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. And Hannah, do you, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to one of the questions earlier, if I was approached by somebody who was saying that they were lacking in energy and, and feeling quite lethargic, immediately when you asked that question, I had a whole host of questions that I would immediately mm. ask you back. So I feel like for a GP, 
where they are taught about like the breath tests and the blood glucose tests, there should also be a part of that where they're taught about the questions that a, a nutritionist would ask in a sense of, so do you eat meat? Because there could be a B12 deficiency there. Obviously, you do the blood tests to review iron levels, but also dietary. What are you eating in terms of if you are vegetarian, are you getting your iron based pulses and and things in there? Are you staying hydrated? That's a huge one, a really simple, easy one for lethargy. So I feel like there should be that sort of of training where not only a, a GP is taught about the medication and the clinical ways to address something, but also the really simple dietary questions that could also lead to simple solutions Mm. in those situations and it's also funny because when you ask a patient how much he drinks uh, he says enough okay (laughs) enough (laughs) enough is what Uh, okay when i'm thirsty okay then uh, one bottle two bottles uh, how many Mm -hmm. ah half a liter Mm. okay and you understand it's not enough so also their idea Uh of enough uh, is always something uh, funny And, and let's be honest, whatever you do actually drink, you then take off at least 30%, yeah. yes, right? You're exactly. never going to truly exactly. admit. Yes, sir. Yeah. yes sir. But it's really interesting so because it, I, I, I wonder, do you have conversations like this together as nutritionists and GPs? So, for example, do you ever have moments in your life where you can talk to a GP and say, it would be really great if when somebody comes in and says, I'm feeling really tired. If you asked like these set questions or something like that, do you have those conversations? Not me personally in the sector that I'm in, only because I I don't have regular contact with with GPs. Yeah. And I know, and I think that's probably one of the things that started the conversation in the UK about the additional training that GPs should be given to arm them with the correct tools. I'm sure somewhere along the line that was, well, I guess it was budget cuts and things as well, wasn't it? It was, Mm. we can't afford to keep prescribing all of this medication. Are there other things that could be done to improve people's health before they have to, Mm. to, to be given medication or requiring hospital appointments and the MRI scans and the stuff that goes further? So it probably formed part of that conversation, but I don't know t- for sure because it's not something that I've I've been involved with. Mm. That's quite interesting. So do you think, well, there's two things here. One of the podcasts we did earlier on alternative protein nutrition, we had a nutritionist and a medical student on there. There's an interesting opinion came out. Actually, GPs are trained to do one specific thing and nutritionists, dietitians are trained to do another thing. So should doctors be the ones who are giving out nutrition advice or should nutritionists and GP working side by side to look at the patient holistically? What are your thoughts on that, Hannah? I would like to see working side by side, but then I also think a GP needs to have that information to then be able to point their patients in the right direction because there will be situations where nutritional intervention doesn't work. You will still need that clinical support. So I absolutely think that GPs should have that information, but I also appreciate they have to hold a lot of information. (laughs) So in terms of, of doing everything, they should have that in their portfolio, if you will, mm. but then have access to other specialists that they can then refer on to. Because it, like we've said already, people are specialised in different areas. We should be able to access the different support systems that are there. Do you agree, Margarita? I agree, yes. I think the ideal office uh, is an office when there is a GP a nutritionist, a psychologist, uh, and uh, something else. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Does together. that exist? 
Is that <laughs> no? Is that where, no? <laughs> Not here, no. at least. Uh, I don't know in other countries, but uh, that would be great. So, what steps do we take then to get closer to that place where at least GPs and nutritionists and dietitians are working closer together? What needs to happen in order for that? Is it just a question of money? Does it go broader than that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, how would you like to work closer together, I guess, is, is my question. Oh, well, it, it might be easy from a certain point of view, because uh, if you have a, a big office with many rooms, uh, it's something you can fix. I mean, it's something you can organize. Uh, you have a friend uh, who's nutritionist, uh, you, you, you tell him, OK, come and work with me. No. Mm. I think that uh, making it bigger. So uh, I don't know the highest levels. Uh, I mean, Asla and uh, Rajon and everything that's over me are able to organize uh, such a thing, honestly. Okay. Yeah, I think it comes down to funding. Ultimately, we are all there and available and ready. And I think purely from my own background, you look at an athlete, they have a multidisciplinary team around them. So they have a coach, they will have strength and conditioning, they will have a physiologist, nutritionist, physiotherapist, they will have a whole team of people around them. But that costs a lot of money. And they have all mm. sorts of input to be able to pay for that. So and also GPs and doctors and nurses and consultants have stated anecdotally many times in the UK that they don't have time to be able to dedicate so much support to each individual. So again, you either need to put the money in to pay for more resource at a very basic level of just providing enough GPs for what's needed. And then the next step is to try and bring in the multidisciplinary approach to be able to support people across all, all areas. Exactly. I mean, for example, if I want a nurse uh, to work with me, I have to pay her. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the sanitary system won't pay them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a problem. I, I can't pay everybody. Mm. So it's a question of more money and people trying to build maybe their own health team around them somehow, you know, rather than <laughs> exactly. always reaching out. That's super interesting and a, and a really nice place actually to start wrapping up. So just want to say it's been a real pleasure talking about this. It's a very complex topic. And, you know, we uh, admittedly, we're all a little bit worried about going into it because this you could just go all over the place but it's been really fascinating listening to your opinions and also from a personal point of view I used to be very obese as a child so I have gone through all of this myself and have never Mm -hmm. once been given advice as a child and I don't think I ever was in a GP surgery where they actually said to me you're overweight which maybe I, I should have been told but anyway so where would you divert people to so what resources would you point people to as a starting place, just to say, you should go here to start learning about this. What what, what would you advise, uh, Hannah? There are some brilliant NHS resources available, which I know it sounds like a cop-out answer, but there is a, a ton of information that is all provided by medical specialists on the NHS website. And a brilliant resource for, as a family, is the Change for Life resources they do all sorts that are are packed with recipes and really user friendly budget friendly suggestions on how to get fit how to maybe lose a bit of weight if you need to and ideas for getting the whole family into the kitchen starting from basics right the way up to some more advanced work so yeah absolutely in those two directions and please I can't stress this enough get your information from professionals there is a lot of misinformation on social media please go to those who are qualified and and registered 
in their area of expertise. Mm, brilliant advice. Yeah, that's something definitely we were discussing too when we were planning for this. Lots of misinformation in the nutrition mm-hmm. space. And what about you, Margarita? Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for up and coming GPs in terms of being able to support their patients from a nutritional point of view? The first advice would be to study. And uh, <laughs> no, the second one, there's a, a very well done si- website uh, that I usually use. And it has uh, different uh, nutritional, uh, how to say, plans uh, according to the pathology, according to who you are. So a mother expecting a child uh, or uh, an older adult. So it could be an instrument. Uh, at least uh, you have the, the main points uh, and uh, you can use them as a suggestion for your patient. Mm, brilliant. Thank you so much. For What's that. the website, Margarita? It's uh, called uh, Educate. If you want, I can email to you. It's made by Grana Padano, you know, the cheese. Ah, interesting. Okay. Exactly. Ah, interesting. Yeah, they made this. Uh, it's called Educazione Nutrizionale Grana Padano, and uh, it's very nice. Uh, there's a, an app for the diets, uh, and uh, it's well done. Ah, that's brilliant. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, definitely look that up. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And uh, just about yourselves personally, I mean, if people want to know a bit more about you and what you do, where can our listeners go for more information? Hannah? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as Hannah Rose Nutrition. So feel free to come and find me on there. Wonderful. What about you, Margarita? I'm kind of prehistoric on these things. I don't even have Facebook, so just uh, send me an email. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, okay. We'll, we'll try to, we, we won't send your email address out just in case you're sending it in. Yes. Yes. But, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. Well, once again, just wanted to say a huge thanks for your time today. Really interesting topic. There was probably a number of areas we could have just kept going on that. So really mm. appreciate your time. And I just wanted to say that this has been the Food Fight podcast. So as ever, if you'd like to find out more, head over to the EIT Food website at www.eitfood.eu and join the conversation via hashtag EITFoodFight on our Twitter channel at EITFood. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. That's it for now. Thanks everybody for listening.